Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Do you believe that it's a foregone conclusion that the House will impeach? Well, I think they want to. Uh, any Democrat wants to because they're not going to beat me in the election. So, of course, they want to impeach. Why wouldn't they want to impeach me? It's so it's so illegitimate that it cannot be the way the founders, our great founders, meant this to be. The impeachment process is the closest thing of a political death row trial. So I get his absolute rejection of the process. Given the history in our country, I would not uh, compare this uh, to uh, a lynching. That was an unfortunate uh, choice of words. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So the impeachers, I mean inquirers in Congress, had a behind-closed-doors hearing with William B. Taylor Jr., the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine today. Do you remember Taylor? He's the one who slid into DMs with his fellow diplomats to say, hey, this president is on tilt. Those who heard Taylor's testimony today said it was, wait for it, fucked. No, they didn't say that. They said it was disturbing. Whatever. For us, the disturbance ship has sailed long ago, but I guess proper people in Congress have reached the limits of the language they can use in mixed company. I'm guessing, though, that Taylor spelled out the details of what we already know about Trump's dealings with Ukraine. Trump solicited help to bully and smear a political rival and offered to withhold military aid if he didn't get his way. Quids, quos, it's all there. Disturbing, to say the least. It sounds to me indictable, convictable, jailable. But I'm just an unfrozen caveman DJ yammering away on this radio show. This hearing with Taylor was the latest entry in the probe that is the very opposite of lynching, which was extreme violence done to powerless black boys and men denied fair trials in the days when white supremacy was even more obvious than it is today. Trump is the most powerful man in the world and manifestly guilty. Unlike any black person in history, he's being given a lugubrious pretrial so meticulously fair, it seems rigged in his favor. As president, he's been well above the law so far, and the chances of him meeting with so much as forcible removal from the Oval Office are next to nil. By contrast, Trump and company continue to imprison and torture without charges people of color at the southern border. Let's remember that it was only three months ago we learned that children at a facility in Clint, Texas, were sleeping on concrete floors and being denied soap and toothpaste. Children as young as seven and eight, many of them wearing clothes caked with snot and tears, were caring for infants they'd just met. A visiting doctor called the detention centers torture facilities. And that, Mr. President, is lynching. My guest today is activist Ian Madrigal. In their work, Ian takes on the rich and powerful, often targeting CEOs and Trump officials. They use their law degree to call attention to important issues in interesting and comprehensive ways, like dressing up like Monopoly Man to draw eyeballs and explain the issue of forced arbitration. Ian, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. It is so good to have you in the D.C. studio. So we haven't had a full-on 
fully active activist on in a long time. And what I like about you is you have a law degree Mm -hmm. and yet you do things that in my days as a kind of failed activist, we called like, I don't know what, irony. I used to do stuff for ACT UP. Yeah. There were a lot of costumes. There was a lot of sort of media trolling and it's felt very playful, but it was also meant to be sabotage, disruption, subversion. Mm -hmm. Is that how you would explain your role as the Monopoly man? Absolutely. Yeah. I've had a lot of people compare the things I'm doing to ACT UP and that is the biggest compliment to me because I think they're one of the most effective movements that we've seen in the past, you know, 50 years. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's about that intersection between activism and art and humor and humanity. You know, Mm -hmm. I think if we're constantly angry, constantly sad, even though that's a very rational way to feel right now, I think we're going to burn out and we're not going to be able to actually build a better world. Yeah, I think that's right. So tell us about Monopoly Man and how you started to play him. You're trans, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And uh, sadly enough, the timing of my public coming out was right after Monopoly Man because it was the first time I was on a public stage and people were asking about my pronouns. And I figured, well, okay, I I want this to be under the real ones. Um, (laughs) So I think I set myself up for, you know, becoming the actual Monopoly Man. (laughs) I like it. Which I don't think anyone's made that joke yet. So I appreciate that I'm the first one to. But yeah, it's been an interesting journey. But the way that it happened initially is I moved to D.C. in 2014. My first job out here actually was working for Elizabeth Warren as a legal fellow. Ah, Yeah. So my roots go back to very serious work. But also, you know, you can see, I think, the the strands of her politics and what I do now. Mm -hmm. And then I basically became a campaign manager, campaign director for a lot of different nonprofit causes. And one I spent the most time on was this campaign to defend a rule that would have restricted forced arbitration. So basically, you know, these Ah. fine print clauses in in corporate contracts that mean that we can't actually sue banks and lenders when they rip us off or they, you know, commit fraud. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, in my mind, a, a giant corporate power grab. It's them taking resources, them taking power that they don't deserve. You know, they get to use the courts against us, but we can't use the courts to defend ourselves. I knew arbitration as a problem when I worked in Silicon Valley and that went with kind of a gruesome constitutionally incorrect NDAs. Mm, but yes. you're talking about arbitration with banks in particular and lenders. Yeah, that was the particular rule we were working on. It was coming out of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Again, uh-huh. Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, it, it would have been pretty much the biggest blow against forced arbitration in any area. Yeah. So it was kind of the first step in taking it on as a larger issue, I think. Unfortunately, we were the campaign was actually going super well. The rule was very strong. We were in a good position. And then Trump got elected. And everything changed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the first year of his presidency, when they weren't able to pass any bills, even though they had Republican power in the House and the Senate, they were repealing all of the Obama era rules. And that's when our rule came up on the chopping block. So we basically went into panic mode and we had to save this thing that we'd been working on for, you know, I'd been working on it for, I think, a year or so at that point. But activists had been working on it for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a huge blow. And, you know, a big part of my job was to be able to talk about forced arbitration in a way that people could understand and actually care about. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing. People get very wonky and legalistic with it. Mm-hmm. And one of the most effective frames we found was calling it a get out of jail free card. Mm. And so Monopoly. Yes. Man. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is so amazing how much that game, how many ways that game has gotten into the discourse, right? Like, yes, my mother always said, do not pass go, do not collect 200 when she wanted to get us out the door. Also, what's crazy is that it's an Atlantic City game with hotels and properties, mm-hmm. just like, you know. Trump himself. Okay, so forced arbitration, you called this get out of jail free card. And how did that help explain it? 
you know, I think it was just a lot simpler to take this idea that people already had of just rich people getting off without having to face the same justice system that the rest of us do. And so it was a just a quicker kind of meme to understand it than trying to explain all of the details of it. You know, I think people automatically get injustice. It gets muddied the more you talk about the details and the particulars. So that was super helpful. And what ended up happening is, you know, we had the Wells Fargo scandal, which uh, had a lot to do with forced arbitration. They used those clauses to ensure that even though they created fake accounts under people's names, that people still couldn't sue them for accounts yeah. they never agreed to, which is wild. And then the Equifax data breach happened. Mm-hmm. And that also involved forced arbitration because when they were trying to cover their asses, they were giving people this free monitoring software that included an arbitration clause. So basically, if you took their way of trying to fix their data breach, you were then relinquishing your right to sue them for the data breach, which is just diabolical. Yeah. And then what ended up happening is the same week, there was a hearing on Wells Fargo and a hearing on Equifax. And I was like, all right, this is the moment. We got to get this issue in front of people. And how did those particular details of consumer protections and other protections influence your kind of macro thinking about politics and power? Yeah. So my analysis has always been very rooted in power. And Mm -hmm. I actually... It's funny because I think my career has just taken such an interesting turn. But in law school, I did a lot of very serious academic writing about corporate power um, and its roots because I, you know, I did a lot of research into the issue. And if you look back at it, the rise of corporate privilege in the law actually tracks with the fall of explicit white privilege in the law. So basically, mm. in the eras like you know post Reconstruction, the Civil Rights era, when we were actually taking you know the very overt like white people get to do this, black people get to do this parts out of the law, even though they're still not. Not enforced the same way. We were then saying, okay, well, corporations get to do this and people get to do this. And who are all the corporations owned by? So I see corporations as, you know, just our modern day ruling class. And I think it touches issues of every type of oppression. You know, they're owned by rich white people and rich white men, I should specify. Yeah. So this hits white supremacy. It hits sexism. It hits classism, all of these things. So for me, corporations have always been the enemy. And it's like, how do we figure out how to take away the things that put them above us? You know, it's not that I don't think they should exist necessarily. It's that they shouldn't be supreme in our law. And they currently are. I don't know if you followed this, and I think I've mentioned it on this show before. You probably did. But at the recent G7 that was um, upstaged entirely by, uh, by, what's his name, that... United States president. Anyway, oh, yeah. Um, he'll, I don't know if he, it'll be it'll be the G6 next year because America will probably be out. Honestly, I hope so. In any case, there was a launch of something that got absolutely lost in the proceedings called the Barrett's Partnership. That is the advisory council there, which included Emma Stone, the actor, um, mm. ish, uh, identified something like 79, 80 good practices in gender equality laws um, in an effort to you know, it's European, so they're very optimistic in something like the next 20 years end patriarchy. Mm -hmm. It also says, and this particularly interested me, that 41% of the countries around the globe still have formal patriarchy. Not like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm kind of feeling a little bit annoyed or hassled or interrupted or left out at the table, but more like there's an ownership relation of men to women. You know, it's like socialism or capitalism. It's Mm -hmm. a system, right? And just like socialism and capitalism, we have a little bit of it here. And there's something about seeing formally spelled out what patriarchy looks like, that ownership role, gender ownership is... I found it, it empowered me to use that word again. Mm. And also to show how the owned and the owners not only participate in it, but are so damaged by a system like that. 
And that seems like something that, you know, you've addressed with these kind of consumer rights practices that, Mm -hmm. I mean, those companies are nothing if not patriarchal. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think our rhetoric evolves a lot more quickly than our law and even our actual internal attitudes. We learn how to speak about issues in a sensitive way before we actually think about them that way. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. And I think a lot of people hear terms like patriarchy or, you know, corporate supremacy or white supremacy, any of these things. And they think Mm. of it as something that activists just made up in the last couple of years. When in reality, it's like, no, we're describing the lived history that has existed up until the last couple of years uh, in a very explicit way and still continues to exist in a more implicit and invisible way. And I actually think, uh, you know, especially in the issue of white supremacy and how it relates to corporations, um, I think that the corporations were a very useful tool for white supremacy because they seem like they're a colorblind mechanism. It seems like something yes. where anyone can own one. And so it's fair. Right. Uh, but obviously, that's not actually the case. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, both historical and current. I have a piece out in Wired today about marketing in Silicon Valley. And I'm, I'm sure you know this, but a lot of companies divide the kind of, what do they say, like public facing roles. Mm. So the kind of hope hicks. PR or the marketing (laughs) along gender lines, or at least it's gendered. So like, as it happens in marketing, it was like all gay men and women, you know, (laughs) and the CMOs are often women of big companies. And interestingly, as we've seen happen in relationships like the one between Trump and Hope Hicks, the marketing side of things, let's just call it the kind of feminized side, the femme side of companies ends up doing not just helping the company show up in the world by, you know, putting lipstick on it, logos, whatever, Mm -hmm. but also ends up blocking and tackling, in some cases, regulation. And then you think about companies like uh, WeWork or Theranos, like keeping the public away from the faulty product. Mm -hmm. So what's weird is you go from one kind of, and I'm just going to, one kind of subjugated wife to another. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of Hopex was actually obstructing justice by the end. It's a very odd reconfiguration or configuration of patriarchy in corporations. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you you see that kind of feminized supporting role in a lot of different areas. And I think particularly white supremacy, like we're talking about, I mean, that that has historically been the role of a lot of white women is to basically make like racism look friendly and nicer and like it doesn't mm. do as terrible evils as it does. Yeah. Um, you think of like Dana Lesh also at the... Yeah. Um, at the NRA or uh, or Tommy Lahren, you know, ha- like if a if a pretty blonde girl like thinks this way, it can't be, um, you know, somehow it can't be violent. It can't be toxic. It can't be. Um, and, it, you know, I go back and forth. You know, Ivanka Trump has window dressed all kinds of laundering and um, criminal malfeasance. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes I lean toward thinking they've been pressed into service, you know, by mm-hmm. patriarchy and I ought to have a, a bit of compassion. And then I think, then I'm not sure. Then I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it, we've, this show, we've talked about the women involved, Trump's women, as some people call them, and I don't know what to say about them. I don't know how you get in that position. Yeah, I think it's very complex. And I, I also don't want to limit this discussion to like white women. I think it's a lot of mm. times you have any person of an oppressed identity that, you know, joins along with the oppressor instead of fights against them. And I think yeah. overall, it generally is the minority of the oppressed group. Yes. Because um, it, it's not a very logical position. Um, and I, I think it makes sense to have empathy on some level, I think it makes sense to have empathy for everyone on some level. Mm -hmm. But I think what is the problem for me is when we start focusing more of our empathy on the people that collaborate with our oppressors rather than the people who are oppressed. 
you know, and I yes. think that's where we get stuck a lot. We try to understand the people that are helping cause the harm, but we don't try to understand the people that are being harmed every day. And frankly, there's a lot more of them. Yes, I think that's right. So you are very close to a woman who is a Trump supporter, <laughs> um, your mother. Yes. How in the world have the last three years been for that relationship? Um, I know there's precedent. You don't have to go into early childhood kind yeah, of thing. Sure. But but I just want to know how you've lived with that at the table in the family, because lots of us have. Yeah. Well, so I, I should say, actually, both my parents um, have been Republicans pretty much my entire life. My dad has been less explicitly supporting Trump. But yeah, it's it's been a struggle. I mean, obviously, you know, it messed up a lot of my childhood, like being a trans kid in a Republican home was not very easy, even though my parents aren't particularly socially conservative. They're more like the California um, fiscal conservatives, even though they don't have any money, which is really confusing. Like the orange, or like kind of Orange County? Kind of, yeah, except okay. poorer, but... Okay, yeah. poorer, right, right, right. Um, but it's a it's a strong ideology out there. But it's Reagan, Nixon... Yeah, yeah, it's those ideas. I think, honestly, for them, a lot of it is about power, and that's something that I've come to understand. You know, a lot of my childhood was pretty abusive as well, um, both in terms of, you know, outright things and then just kind of neglect because they had their own issues going on and didn't really know how to raise a child in a, a particularly supportive way. But I think that's helped me understand the ideology a lot because I think it's very rooted in our systems of abuse in families and in our culture. But specifically talking about Trump and with my mom, you know, the last three years have been a pretty huge struggle. Obviously, you know, I, I suspected that she probably would support Trump, but I think just knowing that she actually cast that vote when that was confirmed was mm -hmm. such a gut punch to me because... You know, I, you just always want to hope that people are going to do better or learn. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's comforting to me that she lives in California, so her vote didn't really matter. But mm. it's it almost makes it worse because, like, you could have just not done it and still had him as president. And, you know, um, you could have stuck up for your kids. The story has evolved from the sort of cartoonish media story about Trumpites has evolved from this extraordinary bending over backward to make sense of their views in 2016 uh, make sense of their, to me, inexplicable loathing of Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. um, we saw Jeff Tubin yesterday, the journalist, apologize for his role and regret his role in overhyping Hillary's emails, which, of course, have now been shown to have yes. you know, given away no secrets. And then at the same time, all the interviews, you know, sometimes they call hillbilly safaris or whatever, where they go to diners and talk to people and decided that it was economic insecurity all the way, not the Russian hacks, not a racism not Hillary hating, misogynistic Hillary hating disinformation on Facebook, but in fact, a true felt lived experience of, quote, economic anxiety. Basically, I think, you know, it's sometimes in the subway they have ads say, have you ever had a headache? You must have hep C. Mm. Well, I feel like it was, have you ever worried you don't have enough money? You must have economic anxiety. Vote Trump. Yeah. You know, it's something that universal quality. We all wish we had more money. So then that turns into economic anxiety. That turns into Trump. I, I, th I thought it was ridiculous logic in 2016. In any case, since then, they've been represented as, you know, insane, lost to reason, mm -hmm. you know, that we have to recognize they will, quote, never come around, that they look like ralliers and red hats and they have pitchforks and guns and, uh, you know, they will push their representatives to go harder and harder right for the wall um, and they'll never leave Trump's side. We've had a ton of people on this show who've changed their minds and changed parties. Mm -hmm. So I also disagree with that. Just as I, I don't think they had completely legitimate 
perfect motivations. Uh, they weren't comp- informed voters in the beginning um, who voted on their interests, nor do I think that they're completely lost to reason. Um, but I have been interested to see Trump supporters, if anything, just get quieter over the past <laughs> three years. Yeah. Just a little bit more pensive, a little bit less likely to wear the swag. Yes. What do you think? No, I think that's that's totally right. I think the economic anxiety angle never made sense, especially because um, one of the biggest splits between Trump support and Hillary support was actually if you looked at it by income. <laughs> like Hillary got all the bottom, I think the bottom 50% of voters and Trump got uh, the top 20 or so. Um, yes. I, th- th- why they went on hillbilly safaris, they should have gone on, you know, law firm safaris, yes. oil men safaris. I mean, lawyers and doctors for Trump are the most interesting, some of the most interesting voters, bankers for Trump. Yeah. And instead, we had to hear about disenfranchised minors. Yeah. And the rich people got their tax cuts. So their motivations actually make sense. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it's the coverage has been completely backward. But, you know, I also think that there are so many things that caused his rise. I do think that people are reachable. Um, I will say my mom keeps assuring me she does not plan to vote for him in 2020. I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not I'm like, I want to see who the Democratic nominee is first, because I, I think last time around, too, she it's not that she particularly liked Trump. It's that she viscerally hated Hillary Clinton. So she went into it as a Hillary hater. And how did that hatred get kindled? I mean, did she not think about Hillary when she was in the Senate? Had she hated her as first lady? Yeah, um, it goes way back. Why was it back. visceral? Okay, it goes way back. So, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, um, you know, during the Clinton uh, presidency that she hated Hillary Clinton. It was just that constant frothing coverage on right-wing media. I think there's been a sexist campaign against Hillary Clinton for the last 30 years. And so, of course, that's going to affect people that grew up um, on that kind of rhetoric. When you say visceral, that sounds really, really like primordial. And that is, I think I finally came around to that there was something almost somatic about the hatred of Hillary. I still think it's worth noting that most of us voted for her. Most of us Mm -hmm. voted for her. Many of us, but many of that quantity voted for her enthusiastically. I had a visceral reaction to her as just a powerful warrior that I identified with. So it's not just, I mean, it's a small minority, but they were very vocal about feeling kind of allergic to her. I mean, how did she code to someone like your mom? Yeah. uh, Well, my mom, you know, definitely isn't like she believes some interesting conspiracy theories here and there. But the ones she believes about Hillary are just ludicrous. Like they have no basis. In fact, she'll make up new ones just for fun. Like it's it's (laughs) the most irrational hatred I've seen out of Vince Foster, Pizzagate. See, not even like that rooted. It's more like, you know. Yeah. I mean, just just terrible things um, that I'd rather even not repeat. But but yeah, I mean, I think it shows me how irrational and deeply rooted it is. Like nothing I could say would make any dent. Anything I would say about Trump, it's like, well, Hillary has done these outlandish things that are just, you know, pure evil. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know how to argue with you here. But I honestly think a lot of it is internalized misogyny. I think my mom Mm. has a lot of that. It comes out in um, many of her different worldviews. And I think it's partially just a product of growing up in her generation that, you know, saw a lot of changes, but saw a lot of backlash to the, you know, progress that feminism made. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And also uh, she may have taken the road less traveled uh, or the road, you know, the road that your mom didn't travel. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a kind of narcissism of small differences that I saw among New York women with her that either she was too strivery or, you know, not classy enough, not mm-hmm. relaxed enough, too ambitious, because people had gone all different directions at that stage. 
And, you know, at the beginning of her career, they were still complaining that she wasn't staying home. So that wasn't too far away from everybody's mind that, and many people made the decision. My own mother made the decision to, to, to stay home. And so, you know, it's always like marking your difference from someone else that like hit the same crossroads as you did, but made a different choice. Yeah. They're powerful incentives to do that, to shore up your own identity. Yeah. And frankly, you know, I think a huge part of it from a mom is just the media influence, because that's what I'm seeing oh, yeah. now. I actually just checked in with her on how she felt about impeachment because we yeah. hadn't talked about that yet. Oh, good. And, and my mom generally is a pretty good bellwether of like what is, you know, the middle of the country feeling like. Yeah. Um, and I was actually surprised. I thought that, you know, since she's been coming around on Trump and saying she's going to vote against him, I thought she might be more on board here. But apparently yeah. she is repeating all of the, you know, right wing radio talking points that she's been hearing. She was saying these ridiculous things about Joe Biden that I hadn't even heard um, because Mm. they're not actually based in fact, you know. Um, It it is actually useful to get those. I mean, sometimes the one regret I have getting off Facebook is I can't, for instance, in the Ukraine, the transcript, half transcript of the Ukraine call, Mm -hmm. I couldn't immediately identify at all. I, I mean, I shouldn't even say immediately. I couldn't come close to being able to track the origins of the reference to CrowdStrike. Um, mm, yeah. And, you know, it's, I used to try to stay on top of some of the language that, you know, would wash up in like a word salad in Alex Jones and then somehow make its way to Hannity. But since I don't watch Fox, I don't listen to InfoWars or Limbaugh, and I don't see Facebook, I miss a lot. You know, is this person trying to engage us in something? And sometimes there's suddenly this interesting nugget of language, you know, like CrowdStrike, yeah. where you just think, do I not know anything about anything? You've got to put that in. But so you keep up with some of that via your mom. Some of that. Yeah. When I have the mental capacity for it, it can be pretty frustrating, um, you know. I'm trying to build a, a stronger relationship with her and it's helped in pulling her politics more to the left. But, you know, at the same time, it's obviously blood boiling to talk about these things, especially when it's just so clear that we're not even operating in the same reality. Like, how do you reach someone like that? For example, actually, you know, I was talking to her about the Ukraine stuff and she had all sorts of weird misinformation on that. And I was like, OK, well, what about him holding the G7 at Doral? Like, that is mm. clearly unconstitutional. Like, yes, he changed his mind. But, you know, like, this mm-hmm. is so flat like unconstitutional don't you think that's impeachable and she was saying no 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 that's not a high crime and misdemeanor i was like i don't what is a high crime and misdemeanor Mm. if it's not like directly contradicting the text of the constitution and then she pivoted to well you know president clinton he did things against the constitution all the time and i was like what what possibly came close to this i can't like it's just the whataboutism is so strong oh and also like clinton did get impeached right yes right yeah, uh, yeah. The the what aboutism is very interesting, and I, I've actually seen that from moderates, from mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. oh, from the Hillary left too. Yeah. Voters. yeah, from the left, a lot of you know, we tamper in elections all the time, and you know, like a way the way the Kremlin talks a bit, and and why does that even come to mind right now when we have this emergency? But in any case, so your mother's sticking by the party, the mm-hmm. Republican Party. Yes, seems like it so far. I mean. I'm working on it. But yeah, she has, I think, a lot of just, you know, a strong visceral reaction to any like liberals, um, any Democrats. Yeah. So it's going to be hard. But um, do you remember that movie Inside Out? Yeah. OK, yeah. Disgust was one of the major mm. emotions in that movie. And having read an MIT study of disinformation and forgive me, because Facebook has decided to let lies stand I'm thinking again about disinformation, but the MIT study really said that the, and tell me if this is true of your mother, 
the conspiracy theories that get us the most, the lies that get us the most, are the ones that goose our nervous systems mm. the most. So disgust, you know, it's it. there's a little drug to the hyper arousal mm-hmm. that you are seeking online. So, you know, even if whatever your politics, if your eyes are skimming over the page and suddenly you see the former special prosecutor has had is a child molester, I'm not going to say it out, mm-hmm. but there's it's very, very difficult for the human eye to pass over that without getting a little bit hooked on it, whatever your politics. And then you can shift your disgust from the image that's conjured for you to the disgust at a person that would publish that. Mm-hmm. But both ways, you've you know sent a signal that that is worth reading, that's worth dwelling on. Um, MIT even found that Trumpites wouldn't exchange good news about Trump if it was boring. <laughs> so like there was one time where Trump helped a kid. The story was yeah. true. But confirmation bias didn't get people to circulate it. But it does get people to circulate outrageous stories about Hillary Clinton as long as they are violent, sexual, personal, have to do with her health, have an ugly picture or a sexualized picture. Mm-hmm. And that level of arousal, you know, Roger Ailes putting women in short skirts and um, creating a kind of a kind of pornography mm-hmm. um, that makes that, I don't know, that's very stimulating. And in some ways, I've addressed my Fox News watching acquaintances by saying, like, maybe lay off the porn a little bit, you know, <laughs> like read something a little more measured. Or turn to fiction for arousal, you know, succession. There's nothing like succession (laughs) to get the heart pounding. I mean, I I found succession on HBO like a great diversion from the outrage, my outrage at, in particular, Bill Barr. I love thinking about the family. So much right? to be disgusted by. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and also to parse with your friends. Yeah. With the comfort of knowing you're parsing fiction. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that conservatives have kind of capitalized on disgust in a way that folks on the left have not. And I think yeah. that that's something powerful that we're leaving on the table, not just because it's a good rhetorical tool. I mean, I don't want to persuade people Mm, for the mm -hmm. sake of persuading them. But the fact is, like, the things that the right does are legitimately disgusting. Like, putting children in concentration camps, that's disgusting. That's as bad as it gets. Yeah, deporting children with cancer is disgusting. Like, it's it's very outright. Trump today said he's being lynched. That's also disgusting. Right? And, And there's just something in that language. I mean, so different from deplorables. But you're right that actually engaging that sense, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not just strategic. It's a way of letting us get in touch with that um, primitive response mm-hmm. that's a real response. I mean, I, I don't know if you you went to UCLA, right? Yeah. So my friend Asla Bali teaches there. Did oh, you yeah. I took a class with her. her. Absolutely. Yeah. She explained to me once a long time ago that getting juries to doubt their visceral responses Mm. and substitute in kind of bureaucratic language or ideas Mm. of protocol is something that's done to disorient us. And it happened during the Rodney King trial. You had exact picture of an unarmed man getting, you know, the shit kicked out of him. And then somehow the lawyers could, or, you know, the obvious OJ crime and the blood and so on, you have visceral reaction. This guy did it, or Rodney King didn't deserve it. And the cops were, you know, out of their minds. And then all of a sudden it gets explained to you, wall of words, Latinate weird words, all kinds of things about everybody's protocols in the police department or missing DNA or whatever. And then you're alienated from your own responses. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, my friend Karen Schwartz says this is a, the, related. First, we normalized the hair yes. about Trump. 
<laughs> like we just should have stuck to our original. This guy doesn't even look like a mammal. And he should not be running anything. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's so much to parse there. I mean, you know, I yeah. tend to think that the criticisms of elitism on the left are overblown. But there yeah. is a certain elitism when it comes to just feeling like having any visceral emotion is somehow beneath them. Yes. And I think that that is both a very silly a way to approach life. I don't think that's how you actually live a full life. But it's yeah. also very alienating to, you know, attracting people. Like, you don't necessarily want to, you don't want to take the Fox News model, right, of like constantly having people outraged and disgusted to then put whatever rhetoric you want into their heads. But yeah. when there's actual things to be angered about and disgusted by, pretending that you are somehow above it by not acknowledging it just is a psychological defense mechanism that doesn't work and it actually aids the abuser. That's well said. So I think that's, extremely powerful. And that's actually, I think, partially what the creative activism model that I've been trying to build is seeking to do, you know? Say more. I mean, it's been largely focused on humor at this point, um, mm -hmm. but it really is about tapping into deep emotions very quickly and easily with like a visual cue. So Monopoly yeah. Man is, you know, tapping into the feelings of injustice against uh, rich people owning our entire system yes. by making you laugh. And that's an incredibly powerful way to bring people in. But for example, you know, uh, last summer, I also was part of the group of protesters that organized heckling Kirsten Nielsen in that Mexican restaurant. Yes. In Amazing. Yes. Yeah. And that was also calling on people's visceral emotions. You know, that was just a couple days after we first found out about the child separation policy. Um, and emotions were higher, I think, than they generally have been in the Trump administration. There was that mm -hmm. fresh outrage before mm -hmm. we normalize it again. Um, and so, you know, we decided, like, this is the moment to do something that otherwise might be frowned upon. You know, yelling at people in restaurants is not mm -hmm. considered civil, but this is the moment to be uncivil. And I yeah. think a big part of the problem is that... Uh, you know, a lot of folks on the left and I guess, you know, those in the media and in the more elite circles, they don't want to do that. They think that it's somehow, um, you know, hurting us when in fact, I actually think denying our basest emotions are is how we got here. You know, mm -hmm. we have so much trauma um, and pain in this country that we haven't dealt with. We haven't dealt with the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Native American genocide, any of the terrible, horrific human rights abuses that this country is literally founded upon mm -hmm. and continue to reverberate today in different policies. Um, yeah. We never dealt with that. And so our whole persona, I think, on the right and the left is based on denial. But with the right, they deny the actual harms and trumpet these made up harms. Whereas on the left, we just ah. try to pretend everything's OK. And on some level, that is less compelling. That's right. If we just like keep walking through our educations and writing essays, you know, properly spaced, we end up getting trained in a particular kind of argument and especially legalistic language that can be insufficient to the task of describing the emotions of especially this period. I mean, I think a lot of us have found ourselves sort of at the end of our abilities to explain things yeah. or and at, at least and also jumping, jumping into trying to tunnel into the roots of how we came by our beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, all of us, you know, in some ways it's worse for Hillary voters who have been able to not do that work in mm -hmm. this period have just said, yeah, I didn't like Reagan. I didn't like George W. Bush. I'm not a Republican, so I hate Trump. Mm -hmm. That's not how this goes, yeah. right? So I, my hands are clean because I'm safe over here. I mean, in some ways, there's been some complicity in what's usually styled as the left-leaning media mm -hmm. because it can be elaborately compassionate to the right, mm -hmm. comfortable that it, it endorsed Trump's opponent. It didn't endorse Trump. And yet failing to reckon with things like, you know, 
I once thought we really needed Hillary Clinton as a president. And now I think we need someone to the left of Hillary Clinton as a president mm-hmm. because Absolutely. Obama would be the wrong person next. Mm-hmm. You know, if he were going to run again for a non-consecutive term, I wouldn't welcome that because we don't need someone who wants really quickly to get everything back to normal because there's just too much rot here. Yeah, we need radical transformation next. That's the only thing that's going to make sure that this, you know, doesn't just happen literally the next election. So let's talk about getting over the rot, both kind of in the culture and politically, either if we see the president impeached and not convicted and removed, or if we see him removed or if he resigns or if he serves out his term and is defeated at the ballot. And, you know, I, I'm not going to bring up that third option. We just don't have <laughs> fifth option, wherever we are, the, the one where he re- wins re-election. That's just, we just live in denial, head in sand about that one. So what do you think? How do we address this going forward and sort of rebuild the republic? Well, so I've given you my critique of the right and my critique of the moderates. I also do have a critique of the left in here, which Please. I think is that we are very good at pointing out what's wrong. We're very good at talking about the harms and, you know, making sure that people remember the history and the things that happen and and pointing out what continues to happen today. I think what we fail at often, though, is that we get caught up in just naming the harms and in the critique, and we don't actually envision what our future would look like. We don't give people a different reality that they could vote for. Um, You know, frankly, we don't spend enough time dreaming, even though I think we get criticized for dreaming too much. And so I think that's going to be a really powerful thing, first of all, just for the 2020 election is not just, yes, get rid of Trump. We can go back to what we had. Like we have to have a candidate that has a vision for the future that is actually compelling to people. And, you know, there's actually a really great book that I want to shout out by Adrienne Marie Brown called Pleasure Activism. Ah. And it's all about, you know, how do you build a better world and organize people, but not, um, you know, recreate the same abusive structures that you're fighting against because you're just focused so much on getting something done that you're burning out and you're pushing yourself too hard and you're pushing your comrades too hard. It's about how do we build the world we want by actually living it in the moment and, you know, taking the time to enjoy ourselves and appreciate the pleasures of life, because what else are we fighting for if not those things? That's absolutely right. And what would that what would that look like for you, say, in your work? I mean, this pleasure as activism, you know, and also self-care as original now Gwyneth Paltrow buzzword, but (laughs) formerly, you know, a notion um, among black activists about avoiding burnout and and uh, and, you know, attending to yourself and to your body first before you put it on the line. But those ideas are dear to my heart as a one time act up person. But they are somewhat alien, I think, to the population, that particular way of talking and thinking about activism. Does that matter? Is there a way to build more language that's congenial to a bigger group of people? Or is it a question of pulling everyone over to what might seem like more rarefied language? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I think, you know, I actually think Elizabeth Warren spoke about this very well at the LGBTQ Mm. forum recently, where she was talking about the individual worth of every human being. And Mm. I think, you know, on the left, we're very good at talking about that rhetorically, but we don't actually act in that way when we don't treat ourselves as worthwhile human beings. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's hard to imagine exactly what it would look like. But I think, one, we have to just think bigger. We can't always be thinking, okay, what's the actual bill that I'm going to be able to get to 
get through Congress next year. It's what's the goal mm. that we are aiming for? You know, I think that's mm-hmm. a huge thread that runs through activism around prison abolition because people hear the idea of abolishing prisons and they think that it's, you know, some silly fantasy that can never happen. But part of the thing is that we have to actually figure out what we are aiming for and then figure out all the pieces that will eventually get us there. Mm. It's not about thinking through what will happen in the next two years. It's about thinking about the arc of humanity. I think that's right. I'm torn because part of me, and now I'm feeling less interested in Buttigieg's ideas now that I know that he's gotten advice and money from Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. But I do like his simple kind of evocation of the day after Trump's out of office. Mm -hmm. And um, that, you know, initially we just think the Wicked Witch is dead. But actually, there's just a lot of work to do right then. Now, he uses this to tee up an argument that we do not need revolution. And I heard someone speak about Venezuela last night, an an activist there. And I was interested that even as dire as things are there, he also is not talking about revolution because, you know, there, there's no place like Venezuela that and and Colombia and and uh, you know South American countries that that know as well the limits of the conversation between autocracy and revolution mm-hmm. and reform gets caught up in the language of you know gets incorporated by autocrats. You see Trump now talking about how much he hates corruption, right? <laughs> yeah. And MBS and Saudi Arabia, the same. So I feel a little bit of Buttigieg's anxiety about that cycle. On the other hand, I don't want someone who comes in and just glad hands with Mitch McConnell and starts mm-hmm. all over again. Papers over all this. So where does that leave us? It sounds like you're not as wary as I am about the revolution language. Well, I think it depends on what that revolution looks like, right? I think the types of revolution that we often romanticize, the more violent revolutions, do, mm-hmm. don't really work out super well. I think they you know, often mean that the most oppressed people, particularly, I think in the case of violent revolution, you know, disabled people, people who rely on medical care, things like that, like are not going to survive a violent revolution generally. And so I think like that kind of romantic idea that we're just going to rise up in arms and take over, um, you know, in some like coup style thing, that's not the type of revolution we need. I think it's more of a transformation, which I think can be done in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the way we do that is to, you know, again, just be more bold to not like not dream within the structures that we currently have, but figure out how we can take the resources that we currently have and turn them into something much better. And that's just not a conversation we tend to have. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think specifically for the day after Trump, it's going to be a lot more complicated because, you know, I would love to be just dreaming from a blank slate here, but obviously we have so much deeply rooted harm to get out. And, you know, that's partially Trump. That's partially just a lot of terrible things that have happened in the American legacy. But I think there is a way to, you know, be able to plumb the depths of that abuse and that hurt without only doing that and then, you know, just trying to get the quick fix. And I'll, I'll actually say, I think my relationship with my mother is a, a pretty good example to me of mm-hmm. what that can look like. Um, you know, as I said, like my childhood was pretty abusive. Um, my parents believed and still believe some things that are very harmful to me. Mm. Um, and it's been a huge process uh, kind of fixing that relationship. You know, I'm not a person who believes I have like a moral obligation to maintain my relationship with my parents. I maintain mm. it because they're actually improving as people. And I see that progress happening. Yeah. But the way that I've done that, you know, is a lot of credit goes to my mom for even being able to evolve. A lot of people get stuck in their ways and don't want to challenge themselves at all. Um, yeah. I, I honestly think for her, her politics are kind of the last thing that she's willing to examine, but our interpersonal relationship has changed dramatically. But yeah. the way that I've participated in that is by 
basically practicing radical honesty. I don't pull punches. Mm. I'm very blunt with her about the things that happened when I was a kid, the things that hurt me. You know, if Mm. she makes some uh, kind of off the cuff remark about how great a parent she was, I'll be like, well, actually, mom, (laughs) let's talk about that. You know, and I think for a lot of people, they bristle at that. You want to go with that family harmony and, you know, oh, it's not worth like raising that right now. It's not about constantly having these deep conversations and working through all that trauma, but it's about, you know, just a basic telling the truth. We don't have to get caught up in constantly discussing the abuses that have happened, but we have to acknowledge them and have them be implicit in what we are building. I think that's absolutely right. I'm not of the belief. I would would I still feel like I would do this over in a second, this, uh, you know, I wish we had never had the, this happen to our country, the Trump catastrophe. But, you know, Elijah Cummings says, why does it happen? You know, try to see how it happens for you, not to you. And mm-hmm. there are ways that this has put enormous pressure on our thinking upon so many subjects. And, you know, within families, within individual souls, just a, a new kind of reckoning about basically a referendum on all values you know, nobody chooses to go through that. You like, you want to, originally, you just, I mean, you just, from a position of pain, you just want to get out of pain. But once we've accepted there's been suffering associated with this, especially for people other than uh, than us, the, you know, people mm-hmm. at the border, people directly affected, Puerto Ricans, but it really does help us reckon, I think, a little bit more about what our sense of belonging and as humans and also as Americans might mean. Yeah, I totally agree. I would never wish the Trump presidency on anyone. But yeah. I do think that the biggest gift that it has given us is that it's laid this stuff bare. And yeah. people are still denying it because they will always find a way to do that. But I do think the people that are persuadable at all are you know, much more open to actually talking about the dark stuff than they ever were. And that's going to be our biggest tool going forward. We have to not shy away from that. And what I'm really afraid of is that the Democrats are going to slide back into the comfortable, like, okay, everything is great now. We're back in the status quo. Things are safe. And I totally get that that is tempting, but I think that's the absolute worst move you can do. And, And that's not, you know, the approach that I've tried to take in my personal life and in my own politics. My guest today has been the activist Ian Madrigal. Thanks for being here, Ian. Great. Thanks so much. That's it for today's show. What did you think? I really care. Ask us questions or pose ideas of your own on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then join us. Join up as a Slate Plus member for a roster of ad-free Slate podcasts. You haven't lived until you've heard a podcast without ads. It's a lot of fun. You also get perks, digital swag, and the knowledge that you're seriously supporting everything we do. It's only $35 for the entire first year. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.